is a new public service podcast brought to you in full by Hachi the Hack. Hachi the Hack probably gives a f- what you think. If you don't like it, then you can find another means of entertainment. Little did you know upon giving this a chance, you have just found the best thing about lockdown. Hachi the Hack is fed up with the media and government sh- and may well let rip. Anything else? I guess followed and enjoy the podcast. Alrighty, troops and troopettes, and welcome back to episode 3 of my Corona podcast. I'm Hodgie the Hack, and I'm here to provide some sanity in the lockdown, as regular listeners will know. Episode 1 was a banter about the Fitbit, and episode 2 saw us look at social media and mental health, and hopefully there were some nice pointers in there, tips for staying on top of things and keeping the heed during the current situation. Now, episode 3, though, is a different kettle of fish altogether. For the most part in this pod, we'll try to keep the mood upbeat and light, but as I hinted at in my my longer intro to episode one, I also feel the media is failing to do a good job of painting a representative picture of what's really going on during this pandemic, and today's episode is all about doing that. I always compare the pod to a drink as a a representation of what each episode is going to be like, and... I'm not going to lie, this today could be like drinking a pint of vodka. (laughs) It's going to be tough. It's going to be a bit hard to stomach at times, maybe. And I'm not lying when I say you could well be crying at the end of it. My mum was when she listened through. Today's guest, Rob McGrath, works as a specialist psychological practitioner in a secure unit working with offenders who have been through the criminal justice system and who have complex psychological problems. Now, some of those offenders have contracted COVID-19. Not just that, though. Rob lost his grandfather to the virus within the last few weeks, so he very, very bravely decided to talk to my Corona podcast. And I began by asking Rob how he feels when he sees people just not paying attention, going out and flouting the guidelines, especially given the personal loss that he himself has experienced. Um, I, th- I think initially there's some genuine frustration and, and anger towards people, I think, at times, um, which I think is fairly justified when we consider why people are doing what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, there tends to be three types of sort of response when you end up in these quite panicky situations for people. So some people tend to accept what's going on and just recognize that it's difficult. Um, some people resign themselves and think it's going to be worst case scenario. And then some people try and resist and just carry on as normal. I think that's what we see some of. Um, I think probably most people, well, definitely most people are abiding by the rules, but that small minority, Mm -hmm. the frustration I think for a lot of NHS staff is it doesn't necessarily just affect those who don't abide by the rules. Yeah. There'll be those who, you know, we'll go out and it won't social distance. And we had a meeting today at work. We're talking about how we feel seeing things like neighbours who are one of one of my colleagues' neighbour had a pool party over the weekend. And we're talking about the difficulties sort of, you know, do we do we call the police or do we just, you know, pretend it's not happening because it's not worth the arguments. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't just affect those people. It will affect, for example, the people who uh, have to look after them in hospital if they end up in hospital. Exactly. They're, they're essentially a conduit just to, to make the disease carry. That, that's essentially what you're looking at. It's a bit like the, the ridiculous gathering at Cheltenham, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know, the, there was a, an interesting infographic shown about the um, cases around the yeah, Cheltenham area. 
since obviously Cheltenham's occurred and positive cases and people in ICU. And it's an absolute hotbed around there because obviously that was allowed to continue now. You know, that, that was a decision that was made for whatever reason, you know, we can we speculate and we continue to do so, but until we know that the hard facts or if we ever find the hard facts out, you know, that might never happen. But mm-hmm. it, it is incredibly frustrating when, you know, we see people going out doing what they want to do and and not necessarily abiding to the rules and colleagues of mine have said they've fallen out with, you know, friends who, who they've known for many years because they just go, oh, well, you know, I wanted to see some people so I went out and tied over to the neighbours and stuff and you go, well, Actually, you know, we're seeing the real, the real sort of scary result of what happened. You know, like I said, a member of mine passed away, um, not because he went out. He was in a care home, and you know, unfortunately, it's it's difficult to stop it coming into a lot of places like secure hospitals and care homes. But we do what we can do. But exactly. at the same time, you know, it's it's incredibly frustrating knowing people just pretend it's not going on, and they probably won't pay the consequences that we others that do so, and that's quite frustrating. Yeah, I think that that's a sad thing, and um, maybe a topic that I'll look into in the podcast in the future is the, the potential societal divide that, that we could see from this. But tell us a bit about the work you do now in a unit where there's offenders with mental health difficulties. So, and and there have been positive cases of coronavirus, COVID nineteen, in there. So, so tell us a bit about the, your your work and and that experience. So. My job title is quite complex. It's, it's, I'm classed as a specialist psychological practitioner, which basically means we have a specialty in something to do with psychologists. So I'm not a qualified psychologist, but my speciality is working in group interventions with people um, who've got mental health difficulties and have been in contact with the criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of my work, like I say, is group interventions. So we do lots of things. Some of them is just sort of psychoeducation, helping people understand sort of their mental health difficulties or how have they explained their experience in their life. Some of it's more in depth, looking at trauma. Um, that's quite a big focus at the minute, thinking about how people's trauma has impacted them, um, as well as looking at their offences and how they can ensure that those offences aren't repeated again to reduce their risk, so they can be sort of discharged back into the community. Um, since COVID's become an issue, uh, we've had to put a lot of our treatment sort of on hold for people, um, simply because we would have groups from different, we have different wards within the hospital. Is that just a resource thing or is it more complex than that? It's, it's actually not really a resource thing. We still have a pretty good resource. Not many of the staff who, um, who are at the hospital that I know of have, been off sick or have had you know suspected cases there's a couple to start with but it you know we've been okay we've managed it pretty well um some of that's just luck but some of it is you know preparedness um but it a lot of it is because we don't really want the men so i worked only with males we don't want them mixing between wards because if one person gets um, a case and they go to a group with people from other wards it's likely to then spread quicker around the unit and a lot of the men who we work with um, are classes high risk. A lot of them have things like diabetes. And there's also a lot of them on some antipsychotic medications, which can affect your immune system. So right. we have to be really careful about thinking how, how some people could contract it and how we can do our best. Because none of so some of them in the unit have leave. So they're allowed out. You know, their risk's low enough. They can go into like, the community and do things. We've stopped all that now to stop the transmission coming in. But that means the only way in now for COVID-19 would be if a staff member brings it in. 
so we have to be really careful coming in on every shift you know we have pp well we have some ppe that we can use like masks and stuff to try and stop it if we've got it but we don't know yet given it what, what are the levels of of that kind of stuff like have you got do you feel you've got enough in terms of ppe because we obviously hear all the horror stories about people in the front line not having the necessary stuff um how, how are you finding that side of it um so i mean obviously we don't need um full face masks so that it depends on what sort of interventions you're doing with people for those who have been intubated you need like the they call them ff P3 masks, which are the fitted ones, and you need a full face shield, you need scrubs, um, and then the gloves and boots and stuff. We don't have that because we don't do any intubating. Um, at the minute, we're told the guidance for us is that we have just normal surgical masks, gloves, and that's it. Um, there is some discussion around scrubs and staff members wearing scrubs. However, the reality of that is we were told a couple of weeks ago that um, although we would like you to wear scrubs, because obviously if someone coughs, it's on your clothes. If you touch your clothes and then touch your face, you're effectively transmitting it to yourself then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, we were told that you, we don't have enough scrubs. So there's no, there's so, no scrubs. So, so, so what do you, you do instead then? Like just, you've just got to try and make do with what, what's available, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we have some of the, like the plastic, I don't know what you call them, they're, they're more than bibs, but like aprons. But I mean, if I'm being honest there, no one uses them because there's no real point. They don't cover your arms. Yeah. You know, they only cover your sort of chest mass and down to your waist. You know, people can cough onto your arms or onto your hands or just breathe and it can be in the air. That's not going to do anything particularly useful. So they just don't get used. There's no point in them. And there's, we acknowledge that there's no real point. We're sometimes told to have the mindset that everyone's got it. So do your best to make sure you don't get it. So don't mess with your masks. Don't touch your face. But, you know, I, we don't have the full... That's an element of it, but like, it's human nature. I, I imagine some of that stuff's bloody uncomfortable to wear. So you're obviously going yeah. to, your natural inclination is going to be to, to sort of footer around with it, like a, a little bit. Psychologically, what's, what's the impact on, on staff of, of being sort of at the front line of this, even though it's not the, the sort of front line in terms of accident and emergency, dealing with case, whatever. Mm. Um, I mean, it's still the front line. It's still dealing with this disease in, in an acute sort of way. Um, so so how, how do staff deal with that? What's the impact on them psychologically and mentally? Um, psychologically for staff, it, it's, it's kind of difficult. Um, you know, we're always taught this mantra that, you know, we're there to help and to do our best and to, you know, help rehabilitate people in more of a psychological perspective. Um, it's very difficult when we're told that there's nothing we can do because there's usually always something, even if we have to think very creatively with an individual, there's always something we can do to try and aid their rehabilitation. Now yeah. we're effectively told, well, you're going to have to wait because there's nothing that we can do. But also there's some level of guilt as well for the staff because we know that a staff member had to have brought it in. Um, that's very that's interesting. not intentional, but that doesn't mean that, you know, we know that's the only way that this individual could have got COVID and therefore the staff start to question themselves and say, you know, did I do enough? Did I bring in, especially if he doesn't unfortunately make it, which we don't know yet, there'll be some mm. more sort of guilt from the staff and people will start to panic and think, you know, I've done this, this is my fault. The, this um, is obviously just an anecdotal case, right? But um, I mean, is there an element of staff sort of, because I've seen loads of things on, on social media, which is is a cesspool at the moment of, of all sorts of things. Um, <laughs> but, I've seen stories on social media where people are sort of, uh, rather than calling the government to account or whatever, it's, oh, yeah, I saw three folk out walking today, blah, 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 blah. And there's a lot of that going on. But this is an even more sort of direct uh, 
case of, of where you're, you're sort of potentially looking over your shoulder at colleagues and stuff like that and saying, are these guys flouting the guidelines? Are they following it? Is it creating a bit of division in that sense? Is there potentially the fact that you're thinking there are maybe staff that are working here that just aren't paying attention to the guidelines? Um, possibly. There could very well, you know, there are situations that I've seen of people not having masks up um, when they're with service users. Um, I mean, a lot of them will talk about how the masks are uncomfortable. They're not fun to wear. Um, they hurt behind your ears. So some people have reported they get sores behind their ears because they're wearing it for long periods of time. Um, and people also forget, you know, they'll, they'll touch their mask without realizing it's there just inadvertently, you know, if it's got a scratch, you know, if you've got it on for 12 hours of a shift, you know, these things become sort of second nature for you. I, I, I don't think there's much of a anyone's doing it purposefully. And I, I've noticed staff have sort of tried to really compassionately pick others up and say, oh, just to let you know, you know, you might want to change your mask because you've just touched it or, you know, things, little reminders to people to try and keep it on. But I mean, depending on the environment we're working with, you know, if you're on an ICU, you know, we think of ICUs as, you know, people who are very physically unwell. When you're looking at psychiatric ICUs, um, they're people who are very mentally unwell. And that can be some really challenging uh, behaviors coming out, some very difficult, you know, high stressful situations. Mm. It's very difficult then to consider, oh, I've also got to think of my PPE and to think about, know what else is going on sometimes you're just trying to keep everybody safe so um. yeah i mean that that's that, that's obviously a, a very good point that you make so you you've got people that are already sort of dealing with, with loads of stuff mentally right um has there been an impact on the patients that you're seeing being aware of this in in terms of their mental health and then what about the impact of the mental health on staff can you delineate that for for us in both of those cases yeah so we've with the service users, we call them service users, that tends to be the phrase that's used. But with yep. the men, there is a genuine you know, impact on them. Um, like I say, a lot of them have leave. They have some level of independence, even in medium security, um, depending on their level of risk. Having all that stopped, it feels very much like prison again. And it feels quite punishing for them, even though that it's not really their fault. And it's no one's fault. Like, you know, We have to keep reminding people that actually this is difficult for everyone. You know, No one's intentionally trying to cause anyone any difficulties people's mental states are having an impact. People are feeling more anxious. People's moods are dipping. Um, that, that's always really difficult. And it, it's trying to alleviate some of those anxieties and to try, try to help people understand why we're doing what we're doing. It's not a punishment. It's to try and keep people safe. Um, also some paranoia as well. Um, you know, if you've got a history of paranoid beliefs, if then you've got mm. lots of staff walking around with masks over their faces, that's very easy for them to increase that, you know, feelings of paranoia. That's, that's a very logical sort of step for people to take. Uh, you know, we do our best to try and alleviate their difficulties, but I mean, it's, it's fighting fires at the minute, just trying to make sure that people are okay and they understand why we're doing what we're doing. Um, yeah. And what about the impact on staff then? Because obviously this is, this has come out of the blue and it's something that is bigger than, than all of us, you know, mm-hmm. and b- bigger than the health service. Like, <laughs> And something that I've got a massive pride in in, in terms of this country is, is our health service. And I think it's just one of those things where 
I imagine when you started sort of going into the line of work that you did, you didn't think you would be dealing with stuff that was as a, as dangerous, you know, um, firsthand in that sense. Obviously, mental health sort of danger, yeah. But I mean, in terms of a dangerous pandemic disease that is transmitting from one to another, you could not have envisaged being in this position. So, so how would you describe the atmosphere among the staff? I mean, and, and I've talked about the mental health, so that's one side of it. But what about just the, the going to work? Are you going to work scared? Are you going to work extra motivated? Like, how are people reacting? Um, I think from a mental health perspective, I think there's probably a lot of underlying trauma um, for staff. Depending on where you are um, and what cases you've got, I think the trauma levels are different. I know of colleagues in other units across the country who've had positive cases where people haven't haven't made it. Um, mm. And there's a genuine feeling of, of fear and anxiety, but also that it's quite traumatic to, to, to care for people for long periods of time. Um, you know, some of the people in our units, unfortunately, can be with us for, you know, 10 years. If you've worked with someone for 10 years and they pass away from something that's no one's real fault, it's very difficult to take. And, you know, we have therapeutic relationships with the men. Yeah, of um, course. And, and for those to break in such a way, it is really difficult. Um, it poses different challenges than, than if family members die. So I think there's some genuine trauma. And you'll see a lot of that in with our um, physical health colleagues as well, who are, you know, there's reports of people seeing people dying, just the amount of people on shifts who are dying. And, um, in, when it was at its height, I think we're past the peak now by the looks of things. But, you know, that's been really difficult for a lot of our physical health colleagues. Um, going into work, I mean, I can only speak from my perspective where there was a time where there was lots of anxiety, there was lots of stress and it was tense at work um, simply because there were lots of people saying that we didn't really think we were doing enough. Um, we weren't reacting, with, you know, even at you know, the start of March, the, the phrase business as usual was being banded around a lot. Um, mm. And that's, that's a really difficult phrase when, you, you know, we're looking at Wuhan and looking at Spain and looking at um, the north of Italy. You know, mm -hmm. you'd look around and go, how can we be business as usual when we've got people dying in their thousands? Like this, this cannot be the way they were working. Thankfully, the, the unit I work on has, has really sort of got into gear and they've been doing a lot to keep people safe. And that's contained a lot of anxieties. We've felt, lots of people have felt that although it's not a perfect response and we've definitely not been perfect, that actually the past month and a half or so, there's been a big shift in what can we do in listening to the staff on the ground. Um, really? I'm and and where, where do you think that's come from then? Do you think that's a, a sort of government-led thing? Or do you think that's come from, uh, I, I don't know, like, like from within the service itself? Um, because that seems like a, a positive move. But do you think that's just through need? Or, or do you think it's a sort of proactive reaction, if you know what I mean? Uh, I, would, I would say it's definitely not a government-based initiative, um, simply because we have... There are other units I know of, you know, both in the Midlands and outside of the Midlands um, who have not implemented similar procedures and have had more cases. Um, and I know of people uh, like units where people haven't made it. It's mm. been very much at times down to individual units and managers and, and sort of leads for trusts to be able to put what they can in place um, and people having to take the initiative, which hasn't always been done or hasn't been done in the correct way. We're quite lucky that we've had a group of individuals who've actually really, you know, put things in place to make sure that we're okay. You know, we can't get in the building without, you know, hands being washed and we can't get out of the building without hands being washed. And, you know, we've got so much, you know, that on the wards, you have to wash hands, don your PPE. 
when you leave wards, it's dispose of it properly, wash your hands. You know, before you go into the office, you've got to wash your hands. You know, there's alcohol gel and stuff. Um, and, and although we, you know, at the time we didn't have alcohol gel, we've managed to pick some up now, slowly but surely it's coming through. So I would say there's probably lots of units and there'll be lots of colleagues in, uh, in mental health units across the country who'll say that, you know, they haven't done enough. It's been really difficult. They've been scared of going to work. Thankfully, I haven't been one of those. And, and despite everything that we've done, we've still had positive cases. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that speaks to the testament of how difficult it is to contain this. However, this is definitely not a government-led thing. This has been very much, you know, initiative by individual units. And, and, and what's the attitude then um, among the, the, the staff on mass? Obviously, I appreciate everyone's got their own their own political beliefs, but this goes beyond politics, uh, definitely. So what's the, the staff sort of consensus from what you can gather in, in, in your sort of area of work in terms of how the government has responded to this and is continuing to respond to this? Um, I mean, I would say as a caveat before I properly answer the question is that, you know, most people in the NHS tend to be left-leaning, simply. And, and we, we, I suppose we could debate why that is until the cows come home. But <laughs> Empathetic. Mostly, <laughs> most, most people in the NHS are left-leaning. I would then follow up by saying that most people have felt that I've spoken to personally felt the government's advice has not come quick enough. It's been mixed at times. You know, we, we had a, a, a quite a lengthy meeting today from all our colleagues in psychology, and there were numerous people who made reference to how, you know, people will sit, go outside and clap on the streets, but they'll vote in a certain way that might not help the NHS. Hmm. and that the government isn't doing everything it can you know it's we talk about the chronic underfunding of the nhs and you've you know you've got the guy who's 99 is he 100 now who's been you know marching in his garden for charity and you go that's not good enough really you know we shouldn't rely on i mean what's what's the point of national insurance right if you're going to get rid of pensions and then just make the nhs essentially a charity so yeah you know we, we worry about where it goes private sector wise you know we don't want you know things that yeah. are private because lots of the people who we work with come from you know more deprived backgrounds who would not be able to access the help that, that they would necessarily need to make go as lives again after you know some difficulties mm. I, I genuinely don't believe that the advice has been quick enough to come um and i think that that's my personal belief i'm not going to speak for everyone in the nhs there no, 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 absolutely no. draw people's attention to Cheltenham as, a, as a, an example of how not enough was done Please remember to stay home and save lives during this difficult time. But also remember at some point this is all going to be over and things will begin to get back to normal. Until that time comes though, on my Corona podcast, I'll be aiming to create content which is entertaining, informative and helpful during the lockdown. So if you enjoy the podcast, please share it, rate it and subscribe to it so as many other people as possible can do so too. Just in terms of, you mentioned the, the NHS clapping thing. I, I think a few people that I, I know personally that, that will be listening to this podcast probably know my beliefs on this. What, what's your kind of view on it? And then, as, as well as your own personal view, what's, the, what's your consensus among your, your workers as well? I mean, is it something that really helps them? Those people going out and sort of beeping their car horns and doing all of these things and, and that sort of feeling that we're all in it together? Or does it just feel like you're to use a, a nice Scottish phrase, farting against thunder a little bit in terms of the fact that the government just aren't responding, no matter how many people go out and clap. I love that analogy. That's genuinely made me chuckle. <laughs> um, I think it's probably been different depending on what setting you're in. So I think for people who 
people who are probably in the ICUs intubating people probably feel there's some, you know, they're being appreciated um, and they'll be coming out of shift seeing that and probably thinking, oh, well, that's nice. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't, I don't really see what it achieves other than people feeling they're doing something without actually doing something. To, to me, it's frustrating that people will act and do certain things, for example, flout the rules or, mm-hmm. you know, vote possibly in a way that isn't particularly helpful for the NHS, whether, you know, we could, we could do politics, the cows come on, we don't, that's for another time. Yeah, 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 we'll, we'll keep the politics out of it, just dealing with the yeah. stuff on the ground. I, I just think that the clapping, I'm not entirely sure what it achieves. Most people in NHS know that we're valued. Most of us know that actually, you know, we do a really positive thing. We're trying to help people. That's why we do what we do. So the idea that people stand outside their doors clapping makes any, any real tangible difference, I think, is difficult for a lot of us to swallow. Um, and I also think there's been some, some people who I know, and this is only anecdotal, but some people who I know whose areas haven't participated in the clap. So people haven't been clapping, you know, it gets eight o'clock on a Thursday and no one does anything, it's just silent. And then some people have felt like, oh, well, my area's not doing it and my community doesn't, cares less or whatever. I just think it causes more problems. You know, people don't want, the uh, bottom line is we don't want to be clapped. You know, we want safe, yeah. safe wards, PPE. And you could argue, you know, I, I'm doing it okay personally for money, so I'm not going to push the point too much, but there's lots of people in NHS, you know, I would argue that every nurse is, under, is underpaid. Um, especially with their nurseries, uh, bursaries, sorry, being taken away a few years ago. Um, so, you know, you want to support us, pay us properly, give us a PPE we need to make sure that things are staffed correctly and waiting times drop. Don't, don't push a clap for people to stand on their doorsteps because bottom line is that's, that's not what we want. It genuinely isn't, you know, we, we see that the underfunding in the NHS every single day we go to work, fund it properly, that, we'll take that. Yeah, no, I think I think that's that's fair to say. Um, is there a worry? Do you think among a lot of staff uh, about the future of the service? I mean, obviously you're dealing with the here and now. I, I totally get that, and I, I get there were probably lots of concerns about the future of the NHS, given all the the sort of clandestine private selling off that's going on before any of this happened. But has this brought into stark perspective just how the health service is on its knees and are people working within it worried? I mean, you've also got the Brexit factor coming in and, and losing loads of staff that way. So with all of these factors conspiring, is, is there a genuine worry among staff that, from, from what you can discern that it's just going to implode, really? In a word, yeah. You know, like I said, the energy has been underfunded for decades now. You know, every year they tell us that we get more money and every year we go, yeah, but we needed double what you're giving us sort of thing. You know, if we need 30 million and they give us 10 and then the next year we say we need 40 million and they give us 11 million, you go, well, yes, you've given us more, but the percentages are, are off. You know, we, we need way more than that to, to be able to help the people we need. The population increases. We need more money. That's just the reality of it. Um, I think COVID has shown how people can come together and we can really sort of help each other within the services. But I also think it's shown that we, you know, we are not prepared um, for something more serious. And like, you know, I'll make it clear. You know, like I said I, I have a family member who died. I know the seriousness of this. But if this had, for example, the mortality rate of Ebola, you know, the NHS would have fallen apart months ago. You know, it, it'd have been chaos. Um, mm-hmm. I, I genuinely don't think. I don't think most people outside of the NHS realise 
or outside the public sector maybe realize how difficult it can be at times just to cover things like shifts you know i don't work as a healthcare anymore i've done that it's been that was several years ago i worked as a healthcare briefly what did you do at that at that time so i've worked as a healthcare in uh cams so with teenagers right. uh, i did cams acute um cams forensic so medium secure male uh teenagers um and in learning disability services as well um so you know i've seen firsthand you know not having enough nurses to run a shift um having to run on agency and bank shifts and being the only you know i've been the only regular member of staff as a healthcare you know as a healthcare you're a fairly junior member of staff when it comes to things like medication you know we don't we don't dispense meds that's a nurse's job so you know we're having to help with things like that that comes and goes and i'm speaking about from a mental health perspective you know you have good shifts and bad shifts but you know there's there's lots of talk about how you know we're struggling to recruit nurses and and this isn't going to help the situation i don't think i mean may, maybe the clap will help to motivate people and get people to realize that the nhs is a good thing maybe there's some awareness there for young people coming through education but you know we we desperately need staff and and unfortunately you know it's difficult to recruit at times especially within you know if, if i qualify as a clinical psychologist or a forensic psychologist I could pretty much pick any city in the country to get a job in. That's how, you know, that's how easy it is to get a job, but it's very difficult to qualify as, as a psychologist. So, you know, there's a real lack of psychology colleagues out there at times um, for several reasons. So the NHS is, is, is struggling. Um, however, I think most people probably knew that before, you know, COVID, it's just COVID has shown to lots of other people that we're struggling. I think the danger is, and I'm not, I'm not going into this as a question, but the danger is the government and, and people, they basically now have their excuse <laughs> um, that it's, it's, this, this created all the strain, not um, over a decade of, of underfunding and, and that sort of thing. Um, just to, to round off the interview, and sorry for keeping you so long, mate, because I know you're up early for, for work in the morning, but it's been fantastic to speak to you. I think the the final sort of thing I would just like to come back round to. We started by talking about it. You've obviously lost your granddad, mate. I mean, that's that, that's horrific, and I'm genuinely really sorry for that. I lost my granddad not to not to COVID at the start of the year, but I lost my cousin recently, and we had to do the funeral via webcam, and it was honestly one of the most surreal, depressing, and, and horrific things I've, I've ever gone through in my life so and I imagine that it's, it's going to be a similar sort of set of circumstances but for, for your family with your granddad I think that's the the other end of this so you've got the all of the wider stuff where it's like coronavirus covid you look at it all as, as one big massive entity but within that you've got all these just distinct cases of individual human lives that have been lost and I mean if you want to share some memories of your grandpa please do but just what I would like to ask to kind of finish up is, is do you think that is an element that's being forgotten here that these are sort of individual human lives, memories, people, people with families, all of that sort of stuff within the whole sort of coronavirus pandemic, sort of fear mongering, all encompassing terminology, you know, do you think that element of humanity is almost forgotten about in this set of circumstances? Yeah, I do. I mean, firstly, you know, condolences for you losing family members. I wasn't aware. It's, it's never easy losing family members. Um, no, it's horrible. But, and same with yourself. Having to video call funerals is horrible. Um, I was lucky enough I was able to attend. Um, but 
my mum, who doesn't live in this country, um, it was her dad and who, who passed away, and oh, she wow. couldn't attend because obviously she can't get a flight. So she oh, had mate, to, that's heartbreaking. Um, and not being able to say bye to people, you know, I couldn't go and visit him in the hospital, so you can't say bye, which is difficult because you know you'd imagine you'd be scared and you know watching people in pretty much hazmat suits running around not really understand what's going on. You're in a wow. state of confusion a little bit. You know, it's, it's difficult to swallow. I do think we forget the stories of, of people. I genuinely do. Um, you know, every day, one of the comments I made to several people was that suddenly the numbers that came through on the various news apps every day about how many people passed away became very real. And I, it was interesting to go, well, actually, mm. one of those people is my granddad now. You know, I knew someone very, you know, you know I grew up with, who, who has now passed away to this. And I think that lots of people who aren't directly affected cope with this. And fairly understandably, this is a way that they would cope. Um, they cope with it by trying to sort of distance themselves from it and go, well, I don't know anyone, so it's not too bad. It doesn't affect me. So the numbers just becomes a number. People lose that humanity. Um, and that's simply just a way to cope. You know, we go back to evolution and the way in which we manage in, in really panic situations and scary situations and people are just trying to muddle through. But yeah, I think there's, there'll be lots of stories that are lost, lots of stories that will be forgotten about because people are just unable to communicate them in such a time of distress and, and people not getting closure. You know, it, it's kind of culturally appropriate for, for us, I suppose, as, as white British people that once someone dies, you know, we go and have a beer afterwards and we recount stories uh, you know of their existence and what they did and you know everyone has a joke and a laugh and you try and remember them well now you can't do that you know we we left the, the funeral the crematorium and as soon as it was done we had to pretty much leave you know you can't yeah. you can't hug family members you can't say bye in a way that you'd want to and you just have to to go and those stories don't get told and and they'll get lost and that, that's a that's a really sad thing um there's nothing that any that's you know, not to blame anyone or anything. This is one of those situations. Oh no, no, I get, I get that, mate. It's like this is. I've done, I've done a few interviews in my time in journalism, but no many of them have moved me as much as this. This is like this is really powerful stuff that you're saying, man. And just in terms of that, like, I mean, to, to finish up here, do you have any kind of message you would like to give to, to people, to anyone, um, just on the back of that experience and the experience you've had at your work? I mean, the classic one is just listen to the government's advice. You know, we can we can criticise the government until the cows come home, but the point is we're now at a stage where we just need people to stay inside. You know, the advice is you can do some exercise outside once a day, fine. That's that's not an issue. But it, it is difficult not to see friends and family. It is difficult not to see your neighbours. And, you know, we all want to go to the pub and, you know, have a chat and or go to their friend's house and, I don't know, play Monopoly or whatever. You know, we don't, we all want to do it we all want to see each other and there are ways around that, you know, we can use zoom and, and, and whatever you know, house party or whatever apps, you know, there's loads of them available for people to be able to connect and it's not quite the same, but it's the best we can do. But you know, the impact it's having on people, you won't realize till it's too late. Um, so genuinely just listen to the advice we're being given. You know, there are people criticizing it for, you know, and holding the government to, to responsibility and that's fine. You know, I'm all, all for that, but, for most people just stay indoors do what you can try and stay safe you know wash around disinfect as much as you can um that's that's the real message i'd just like to pass on you know the nhs isn't 
isn't going to be there in its current capacity forever. Um, you know, there's going to be changes to it. But, you know, there are so many colleagues in the NHS who are passing away just because they're getting COVID. And, and if we can reduce that, you know, even if it's by one, even if we prevent one death, you know, from the message coming out, that's, that's got to be a win at this point. You know, we've, we've really got to try and, and, and stop people spreading it. You know, it is difficult. It's scary. There's lots of people on social media, you've already mentioned it, who are trying to put their opinion forward and, you know, listen to the official channels, you know, do what you can, try and stay indoors. Um, and that can help the NHS and keep us alive. A hugely important message there from Rob. Stay home and save lives. And a massive thanks from me personally for his bravery in coming on and the eloquence with which he explained his personal experience and the ridiculous challenges facing the health service and its workers right now. Thanks as well to yourselves for listening and continuing to support the podcast. We can now be found on all of the main podcast platforms, including SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and as well as Spotify. So you just search for My Corona Podcast and or Hodgie the Hack and My Big Ugly Mug should pop up. (laughs) And then if you do do that, please make sure to subscribe if you're able to. You can do that on all the the programs on the phone, all the apps. And if you do subscribe, new episodes will automatically update onto your phone. Also, some follows on the social media would be appreciated. We're on at MyCoronaPod on Twitter. You just search for the MyCorona Podcast on Facebook. And of course, I'm Hodgie the Hack. That's H-O-D-G-E-Y the Hack on Twitter. That's all for now, Troops and Troopettes. I appreciate you listening through to what... I mean, I feel personally that's one of the most important interviews I've ever done. And I hope it gave you some clarity and and, and maybe give you an idea of the, the real situation out there that some of the workers are facing. We'll be back on Thursday to talk about how lockdown might be affecting kids' development and steps which can be taken to to help that if parents are getting a wee bit frazzled. And we'll also be tackling the great debate of whether to send the Waynes back to school. So stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay sane.